I know I say this a lot, but I really do enjoy talking to teachers and people in the world of education. So this interview was particularly exciting and really enjoyable for me because I got to talk to a former high school teacher who is now someone who provides professional development to teachers and school staff. She is also a member of the faculty at an institution of higher education. So stay tuned. Grab your popcorn. This is a really good one. And enjoy the show. And let me know if you have any thoughts, comments, and feedback for me. The email address is turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the Turn and Talk podcast where educators take the mic back and speak their truth without filter. I interview teachers and school personnel and ask them to share their views and experiences about education anonymously. If you work in a school setting or have worked in one and have something to say about education, please email me at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com because I'd love for you to take the mic back and add your voice to the conversation about public education. Subscribe, share, and enjoy the show. Pleasure to see you. Nice oh. to see you. <laughs> what a beautiful library you have. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's the privilege of being able to share an office with a tenured professor of over 30 years. <laughs> wow. She's got a lot of books. Fantastic. I would love to then hear about your experience. How did you enter education? And can you walk us through the journey that brought you to where you are right now? Yes. In kindergarten, I decided I wanted to be a teacher and that I was going to teach kindergarten. And then in first grade, I was going to teach first grade. And and that progressed every year through high school when I decided, oh, no, definitely high school. That's what I'm going to teach. I was really dorky about it. I, (laughs) I just think that there's something about my personality that once I understand how something works, I can't keep it to myself. I have to share with someone else. Did you know how this thing worked? And so I remember being very young and playing school in my bedroom and chastising like Barbie and Bear for talking in the back (laughs) of the classroom and for, you know, writing, writing my name on the board over and over and over again. And it was like the third day of summer. <laughs> my mom was like, Why are you, you're not tired of school. So I think that it was something that's just been sort of in, in me. And I fought against it a little bit when I first went to college and decided to become a psychology major instead. But it was, you know, three science classes and one semester into my freshman year when I said, nope, nope, it's, it's back over to the humanities and education <laughs> for me. Um, So I graduated from a BA program and a a license in teaching, and I started my first job maybe eight months out of college at at a high school in the Midwest, and it was, you know, 15, 1800 students. I had 100 to 150 students on my list, and I was 22 years old. Wow. And what did you teach? I taught high school English and I taught everything. I taught honors. I taught nine through 12. I taught American literature. I taught African-American literature. I taught a composition class. I taught intro to literature. I taught, um, I created a class. I created a study skills class. 
later I moved to New York um, and I taught a literacy class for students who were below uh, their levels of literacy. That was hugely enlightening to think about the transition that secondary ed teachers have to make between when is it appropriate to teach literacy as the primary goal and when is it do you switch or do you transition to literature and or composition and writing and what's the there's a there's a symmetry or there's a there's a parallelism between all three of those things that you can't teach one without the other but you also can't focus on all three at the same time. I was really lucky, I think, that I had a very wide opportunity to teach many different things over the eight years that I was in the classroom and teach at every level and work with students who were repeating their ninth grade year and then also work with students who were, you know, getting ready to go to college and, and, and be very successful in four-year universities. Cool. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the New York City and New York State Regents program. What are your thoughts? What was your experience like at the high school level? Uh, what's, what do you think about the testing program? So interesting that you asked that. That was the <laughs> focus of my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> it is complex. I can tell you that. In New York City, the English Regents exam is the only singular gatekeeper for graduation. Um, many people would argue with me in saying that there are, they have to pass five regions to graduate. Mm -hmm. So how can you say that English is the only main gatekeeper? And the reason I say that is because there is only one English exam. Um, every other subject has two or more and mm -hmm. any passing any of those exams helps you to move through the threshold. The second reason is that in every other exam, a student can take it in a, a home language if they are uh, new to English speaking. So, except for English. Mm -hmm. in, in the English exam, students have to, they all have to take it, and they have to take it in English, and it is the only exam for the entire subject area, which means that for many departments, um, they may think of their 10th or their 11th grade teacher as their English regents teacher, but in fact, every single teacher has to work towards building these skills because the single exam represents three to three and a half years of learning. And therefore, there is a lot of stress and pressure. Uh, in my own experiences, teaching English in high school in New York City, compared with my previous experiences, I was really struck by how focused teachers have to be on the content of the exam and the skills on the exam and what they go to teach. And that in schools who have a student population who's struggling to meet those grade level expectations or pass those tests at a, at a, at a rate that the state decides is required, then everything becomes about the exam. Everything becomes about the test. And we really do see that narrowing of the curriculum where we're so hyper-focused on students succeeding there that we kind of miss the opportunities to teach everything else. And you can't blame a teacher because now not only does this, is there pressure for the student to pass because if they don't pass, they graduate. Now there is pressure for the teacher because a teacher is also evaluated on the student performance. At least 50% of a teacher's rating is based on their student's performance on, on state level exams, in particular the English regents. And so there's just so much pressure on this singular know, this one three-hour moment in a kid's high school career that really determines whether or not they graduate from high school. And students who don't graduate from high school, let's be honest, in today's day and age, 
do not experience the full rights of citizenship. They mm-hmm. can't get anything beyond a menial a menial job. They can't they can't they're not going to get anything above a minimum wage job without a college like without any college or without a high school diploma. They're sort of relegated to second class citizens who will have to have two or three jobs in order to make ends meet, which means that they're not going to be civically active. They're not going to be engaged in community in the same way. And that's not to say that, oh, they can go get their GED. Sure they can, but there are so many cycles of challenges that people go into when they are not able to graduate from high school. And one of the major questions that I have asked sort of the education community through my own research has been like, are we really sure that we think that this consequence, not being able to to earn a high school diploma is equal to the expectations of the exam? So what I mean by that is like, because you can't analyze a poem, you don't deserve to go to college or try to get, Mm -hmm. right? Like other kinds of training for you to enjoy your full rights as citizens. And, and I, I don't think we're really taking up that question in a way that we should be taking it up. And so I think that teachers then feel the the brunt and the burden of, of those challenges, and they often feel it in isolation. Thank you. Two questions come to mind when I hear you speak about the regions and the possible outcomes of it mm-hmm. and its effects on children. One is having been an English teacher yourself at the high school level, a lot of proponents of the program would say that if you teach just the way you teach and if you your instruction is rich and you're doing everything right you know as a teacher and doing your job responsibly then te- the students will just do well on the test uh, right. we shouldn't teach to the test you don't need to if you just do everything right in your classroom it would it would just work out that way did you find or what what's your opinion on that did you find that to be the case i think that there's some there's some legitimacy behind that viewpoint And I would even say that I have said that, and I believed that as a teacher, and I still believe it to some extent. One of the challenges with high stakes traditional testing, however, is that it tends to pressure teachers to have their instruction reflect the exam. So the nature of the exam, however the exam is structured or organized with, if it's all essays or if it's all multiple choice or if it's all true-false, then because that's the gate that kids have to go through, that ends up being the mirror that that they use to create their instruction. And so multiple choice testing leads to multiple choice teaching just out of inertia, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one major challenge. So a teacher has to first fight against that challenge. They have to fight kind of against that expectation, Um, especially because if their students' scores drop, the expectation will be mostly on them to improve them. And there isn't a supervisor who would say, stop, you know, keep doing those projects while the kids' tests go down. Mm -hmm. Like there's this sort of like one-to-one, this sort of sense that like your instructional freedom is earned when your students have high test scores. Mm -hmm. I heard a, a great comment from someone who once said, if you, if you're a school leader who says you don't care about test scores, it's because you have them. Mm-hmm. There, there are very few right. school leaders who say, oh, I don't care about tests like kids, you know, teachers. I trust my teachers to do whatever they want. Um, they only say that when their students have good grades, when their students have good grades already. So teachers in struggling schools have um, multiple things that they have to balance. One, our own ideology about not wanting to be a teach to the test teacher. But we also have to reconcile that students are not coming into our classes at grade level. So 
I think the counterpoint, and I think a legitimate counterpoint to the like, well, if you just teach the skills, you don't have to teach the test, <clears throat> is that that's true when you have a closed period of time and all of the students come in with the, with the assumed knowledge and skills, with the assumed prior knowledge, and that they come to school every day, that they're not hungry, uh, that they're not having to deal with uh, family members who are struggling with uh, cycles of poverty, when they're not having to deal with uh, family members who are in the criminal justice system or themselves in the criminal justice system, when they're coming in without any special needs, when they're coming in fully fluent in their home language and fully fluent in English. Like, these are all of the expectations that a curriculum has. These are all of the expectations that a, that a course has. These are all the expectations that a test has. But we know that even in the best of schools, that's not true. We know that our students are not coming into ninth grade on grade level. We know that many of our students are coming in at a range of elementary, middle, and high school grade levels. Mm -hmm. And so in English in particular, again, I would just stress that like when they take the exam at the end of 10th grade or the beginning of, or, the, or in the middle of the end of 11th grade, this is this assessment is evaluating their knowledge that they should have accrued over the course of three years if they came in 100% on point. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it is not one single teacher's responsibility or it's not within her power within six months or eight months or even the nine months of teaching to be able to teach someone everything that they should have ever known from K to from kindergarten to 11th grade. And that is the burden that that English teachers in New York State feel is it is my responsibility, regardless of however, how, however great or challenge any other teacher has had to make sure that this kid knows everything that they're supposed to know from September to January or to June over the last 10 years. <laughs> and that's, mm -hmm. that's an impossibility. That's the idea that you only have, you can only teach, you'd only need to teach the knowledge and skills of the exam and then all your kids will be fine, assumes that every teacher that child has ever had has been a high, an effective or highly effective teacher and every child is on grade level and every child is, is as invested in their own success as you are. And the reality is that we don't see that. Yes, and you're saying there's too many other variables that, impact the performance of children on these assessments or any standardized assessment, then they're not necessarily captured by the overall score that students earn. That's right. They're not captured by the overall score. And also, I think, and this is more of like a meta-analysis, when we really look at the exam, the big question I have to ask is like, is this really what we want to know? <laughs> Are these the skills that we really care so passionately about, whether or not the student can interpret you know the fourth word of the third line of and the that's, second poem you know and, and answer a question about what the author said especially when authors are coming out when their pieces are used in tests and saying like oh i had no idea that was my main point of my poem <laughs> like, so there's i understand the need i understand that the belief that we need testing I understand the belief that we need a system that evaluates students, that evaluates schools, that evaluates readiness, that evaluates effectiveness. I don't think we have arrived yet at a fair system. So I would love to then talk more about where you are right now in an institution of higher ed and, and your role now. And how do you then develop teachers? 
to deal with this, right? So can you speak a little bit about what you do now and then answer the larger question of what is teacher development like in 2020? Sadly, a few years ago, the Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came out with a study that they did. They they surveyed uh, almost 3,000 teachers, I think, in the Northeast um, United States. And they asked them questions about their experiences in professional development and professional learning and how satisfied or dissatisfied they were. And their study was heartbreaking. And I think it's heartbreaking because it's probably true and generalizable that only 24% of the teachers that participated in their survey indicated that they were satisfied or highly satisfied with their professional learning experiences. And that for the most part, they were dissatisfied. Um, Where I am now at a university where my work has transitioned from classroom teaching into professional development coaching, working with teachers side by side in their classrooms, supporting school leaders, and then now doing more like nonprofit director work in supporting and cultivating a team of coaches who also now go out in schools and do this work. I am proud of the fact that our feedback is around 98% satisfied or extremely satisfied. Wow, congrats. Um, It's as a result of five core principles that we have. And one of those principles is, well, all of those principles are grounded in beliefs that we have about how adults learn and what adults need in order to think through their their professions and and how they will make choices to either change or not change their practice. Um, so our core values drive 100% of our work and 100% of our interactions with teachers. And we're focused on things like cultivating strengths. So rather than walking into a teacher's classroom and saying, these are all the things you're doing wrong, I'm going to look at like, what are all the things that are going well? What are all the things that you're really strong in? And then I'm going to look for opportunities to say, here's something that you're doing well. How can we grow that area? Or how can I take a, you know, a component of this area and apply it to another area where you would like to improve? That's a, a second one of our priorities is around critical reflection. This idea that teachers need time and space and tools to really critically reflect about their practice. One of the things that, it, that I learned in my research and in working with teachers from many, many different schools, both high-performing schools and struggling schools, is that many teachers struggle with a sense of self, a sense of their own identity. Mm-hmm. In that, I think about like magic rings, like a magician has a great, right? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, it's one ring. And oh, now it's three. Oh, now it's one again. Yeah. That we tend to see our identity as a singular ring. And that ring has three smaller rings embedded in it that are all linked together. One is my personal identity in my core, who I am, right? My soul. Mm -hmm. The second is my performance as a teacher. And the third is my student's performance, whether it's on projects or tests, what have you. So when my students respond well to me in a lesson that I've done, I'm okay. When they don't, when when I say, oh, my lesson failed today, that has an impact on how I feel about myself as a human being, not just like, oh, bad class. (laughs) I, I take that with me. The third is how my students perform on exams. So when I give all that I can give, when I, when I teach students everything I know, 
in the best way that I know how, and they're not satisfied with me, and then they don't pass the test, the only implication is that I'm not okay, I'm not good. And now all of a sudden, my identity is like under threat. And there are typically two responses to threat. Fight or flight. Fight or flight, exactly. And so we see that often in, in how some teachers respond to challenging situations. I'm either resistant, there's nothing new under the sun, I don't wanna do these mandates, you can't tell me what to do, I'm gonna grieve this, uh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't have to do this by my contract. Even things that are good, we sometimes see teachers who are fighting this, what feels like a major threat. And the other option is flight. And we see flight in different ways. We see flight in teacher attrition, in leaving halfway through the year. But we also see emotional flight and deflection, right? Where at the end of the day, and if we're saying the kids didn't get it, sorry for them. Yep. <laughs> they should listen more. They should pay attention more. If they only did what I told them to do, they'd be fine, right? Mm-hmm. These are also forms of flight. This, these are deflections that we use to shield us from the pain that we're feeling when we feel like we have failed. We only feel like we failed because we think that our identity is tied to a lesson or our identity is tied to a student performance. But when I can separate those things, when I can say a one ring, a completely separate and holistic thing is the student and the student's performance. Another one is my performance, my execution as a teacher. The other thing is my personal core identity. If my personal core identity is safe, then I can look at my performance with a critical perfection, with critical reflection. And I can say, not at the end of the day, they didn't get it. I wish that they had just listened to what I said. But they could say, they didn't get it. What can I do differently tomorrow to help bridge the gap of what they didn't understand? Where could I have been more clear? What activity could I have planned so that they could have practiced this a little bit more? What do I want to do next to change or adjust my lesson? These are things that critical reflectors do. And they can do that because they feel safe. They can do that because their core identity feels safe. And I can look at data that shows that 50% of my students failed and not nitpick, is this right? Is this correct? Well, they weren't absent or, you know, but I can just say, well, this is really interesting information. And I can use this information to make myself a better teacher. And I can do those things because like psychologically, metaphysically, I feel safe with myself and I feel safe in my space with my classes, with my students, with my, in my school. And not a lot of teachers experience that sense of safety whether they are getting pressure from an administration or they're working in contentious teacher teams or they're in an environment where they don't have all the skills that they need in order to meet the needs of the students that they have. All of these things create stress and pressure and a sense of overwhelmingness. And so when I work with teachers and when we work in our schools, one of our main goals is to create that safe space and to help teachers to to learn practices around critical reflection. Part of the way we do that is by cultivating strengths and then by adding critical reflection and then creating professional learning communities or communities of practice that really help teachers to come together and listen to one another and share their voices and share their concerns without any retribution, without any, without any, you know, you shouldn't do this or you should do this, or this is good or this is bad, but just to create spaces for people to, to talk. About. 
Thank you for those thoughts. I was thinking about professional development and how it's done both at the school levels within schools, right, in-house PD, and also the uh, institutional higher education and just ed schools in general who are also providing some type of training plus education and pedagogical knowledge to prospective teachers. Mm-hmm. Recently, there has been, and I've been part of one organization that has had this philosophy, that higher ed institutions and ed schools, they should be held responsible for the test scores of students taught by the graduates of their programs. So that's a long kind of chain to connect. Um, So I want to hear your thoughts on like a lot of schools have hopped on this and said, yes, uh, you know, our graduates should be held responsible for making one year's worth of growth in every child's reading and and math, et cetera. But then where does that leave us? What is the role of the institution of higher ed or an ed school in the development of a teacher? And what kind mm-hmm. of accountability, if any, should we have for uh, the, the programs and the graduates of the programs? Yeah, such an important question. I feel like I'll, I'll first say that I don't know whether or not my institute of higher education is participating in that. Um, if we were, I would like to know more about it because I might have some words. Um, that being said, <laughs> I I feel like we are extremely focused on accountability and the sort of stick at the end to motivate people. Um, and we do that because there is a sense of knowledge and power in rating and ranking and organizing and then determining this is good and this is bad. And I don't mean that to say there is no evaluation and there is, there should be no assessment and there should be no, you know, accountability. I I actually don't believe that. And I'm a pretty hippy dippy kind of person when it comes to progressive education. And I don't come down and say, we should never evaluate people or we should never have, we should not have no accountability. But when we only have accountability, it's problematic. If you've ever been on an airplane with a parent and a child under the age of two, you know <laughs> that one human being is never fully in control of another human being, no matter how old they are. Yeah. And you can have as many toys and snacks and gummies and like you can have as many things as you can buy to help that baby get through that flight and it really is not up to you in the end our children our students are wholly individual human beings who make choices now many of their choices are limited because they're in a family or because we have societal norms of course but When we're talking about high school students, for example, there is nothing that a teacher can do to compel a child to show up other than being light and friendly and loving and charismatic and building relationship. There are many things that the teacher can do, but none of those things will will force or control a child's behavior. They're a wholly individual and separate person. So when I hold you responsible for a child's test scores, it's like sending a parent to jail for their child's crime. It's like sending the grandparent to jail for not raising the parent well enough to raise the child well enough to not commit a crime. 
this is the sort of chain of events and how we're trying to hold different people accountable. And the reason that we want to hold people accountable is because we want someone to blame because if we can blame somebody, then we can say, I understand this system. I know how to fix it. Just get these people out. Just close those universities. Just fire these teachers. Just close those schools and then everything will be fine. And the reason and we think that is because they have no other ideas. Mm -hmm. Accountability measures are not about helping schools. They're just about trying to make sense and get a handle of what's happening in the world of education. And for the most part, people don't understand. Policymakers don't understand. Many district leaders or superintendents don't understand. Many teachers don't understand. It's so complex. But instead of trying to collaborate, instead of sharing ideas, instead of sharing resources, we put people in competition, we rank them, we judge them, we evaluate them, we put them on a scale, we say, these are good, these are bad. If you can't do it, I'm going to hold someone else accountable, hold someone else accountable. Now, everyone's job is on the line, and we wonder why they feel so stressed out, and we wonder why they go into fight or flight mode. It's because their actual lives and jobs are on the line. You can't think creatively when you think you're going to get fired on any given day of the week because of what someone else has done. So I'll back up and maybe step <laughs> off my soapbox a little bit to say this, we should be holding people accountable, but we should be holding them accountable for their own actions. We should hold students accountable for their own performance. We should hold teachers accountable for their performance, for their instruction, for their planning, for their work with their colleagues, for what they do as part of their job, for exhausting all of their resources and all of their efforts. We should hold higher education universities accountable for doing their job, for, for having thoughtful syllabi, for being connected with what's happening in, in the education culture, for you know having high scholarship. But when we start holding one person accountable or group of people accountable for another group, for another group's actions, Mm -hmm. we're really displacing where the responsibility lies and it scapegoats people and it creates more competition than it does collaboration. And I firmly believe that the only way we're going to answer the biggest questions in education is when we brush our sleeves up and we sit down and we work together and we speak honestly about the challenges that we're having and we really think about what to do next. We give people a lot of love and support for trying something, even if it doesn't work and then we're able to cut our losses and try something else and try something else. And we learn from the promising practices that we can build and that we can share with others. And when we don't do that, when I hold my, this is my secret lesson plan that gets all the students to learn that word and the fourth line of the fourth poem, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to hold that to myself because you know why? I need to have a better score than my colleague. Mm -hmm. or, because, or our school's going to hold our best practices to ourselves because we need to be better than the school upstairs or the school down the street. Or our district holds on our best practices because we need to outshine the other districts or, and so on and so forth. But this kind of a competitive notion, while it may be successful in business where people are trying to steal a percentage of the profits from their you know, competitors, it, it really is a backward system in education where we should be lifting each other up. Yeah, I'm out of school right now. Um, New York State recently had these designations that mm -hmm. rolled out and my school was identified, the school where I teach, as one of the schools that hasn't met the new benchmarks. Mm -hmm. And uh, that comes with a lot of things. And one of the things is we are obviously, we receive more 
visitations from yes. uh, state supervisors and yep. we have to create these new plans and uh, we have to put everything in writing and we have to create these lofty large plans a lot of documents mm-hmm. we have to fill out and yep. I'm, I'm on the leadership team and um, a lot of our time is spent doing that kind of work unfortunately because it has deadlines attached to it and and there's so much other work that you know, in the summer we had planned, we wanted to do, but then all of a sudden we showed up on this list and now we're like surprised and, and we have you to spend more time addressing the accountability questions than you do actually teaching or leading the school. When, Unfortunately, yes. When, when school leaders um, have to go through these processes, they don't have time to lead their schools no. because they're so busy proving that they're doing a good job that they don't have actual time to do their job. Yeah. How um, can we, the leaders be in classrooms, observing teachers, helping them, giving that's them feedback? Right, when they're writing when, 10, 15 page articulations yep. of yada, yada. And, and unfortunately there from time to time, we do have evaluators who come in, who offer great advice, who give great suggestions, who give great feedback, but also like how long does it take someone to get to know a school? You can't get to know a school in one or two days. You can't actually download all the information of what's happening in, in, in a singular visit and then evaluate it as if you, you've been there. And I think that there are, there are many challenges to, to the accountability system. And I, you know, I think that I, at this point, feel really motivated by people such as yourself who are working so hard on the ground, working with your kids, working with your other teachers, working with your school leaders, you know, in an, in an effort to really provide the best education possible. And you're struggling between all of these mandates from the city and the state and the federal government and have this and we have that and, and all of these things that I, it motivates me to keep doing our work so that we can provide some insights, some opportunities for space for reflection to create a space where you can breathe um, we actually do a series of workshops on the new state evaluation program because oh, wow. it is insane. It is insane. Mm. People don't know about it yet because, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the ratings haven't come out for this year. But, you know, the Regents exam, for example, in high schools count against a school eight to ten times. Eight Oof. to ten times they are, their, their weight is magnified eight to ten times in the scoring as compared to the previous iterations. And most people don't know that. We're running out of time. I want to respect your time. Um, I do want to ask this last question, though. If you could wave a magic wand to strengthen, help, improve our education system, whether it's teaching, at schools, whatever it may be, what are some things you would do? My magic wand, the number one need that teachers express and, and educators in general express is time. Time, time, time. I want to do it, but I don't have time. Teachers um, at the secondary level, we'll see between 90 and 150 students a day in 45 to 50 minute bursts, uh, five days a week. They will have potentially two planning, two planning periods. One or more of those planning periods may be taken up with a team meeting or responsibility. Yep. Um, neither one of them is is utilized very productively for actual planning. Uh, and yeah. when was the last time you planned a lesson in your prep period, Jay? <laughs> it doesn't finish. If you plan it well, you can't do it in 40 minutes. You can't do it in 40 minutes. Um, teachers need more time for cr- critical reflection and collaboration, both within their school building and beyond. So I would really like to see 
um, a reduction in the number of class periods that teachers have to teach in exchange for um, time for collaboration, for time for teachers to co-plan together, for them to, um, you know, ex experience professional development together, for them to engage in critical reflection and inquiry projects. Um, I think it's one of the singular most like motivating things is for a teacher to have a project. Um, teachers that I've been working with for the last several years, when we sit down to have our meetings, the first thing they say to me is, here's what I want to talk with you about today. The reason that's notable is because they have taken ownership over their own professional learning. And they say to me, here is my agenda of, and my priorities of what I want to learn today. They're actively thinking all the time, what do I know? What do I understand? What questions do I have? What do I need to know? What advice do I need to get in order to move forward? And those teachers are going to just grow and grow and grow and grow and never get bored from their jobs, never get burned out, never go into fight or flight because they're just so open and eager and feel safe to ask questions and to get the support that they need. So my magic wand is around time. And I think I would extend that all the way to the very top. Um, if we can if we can, and, and, and there are practical implications to that. So this is magical. So I could get exactly. into practical implications, but that's ma that's my magic. It all magic starts is, with an idea. This time. That's right. That, that's my magic wand is just time to think, to process, to connect, to communicate, uh, to reflect. Thank you so much. I really do want to learn more about the workshop you mentioned. Yeah, um, I have one coming up on uh, February 7th. Cool. It would um, be great I'll, to I'll have the, the link. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link and Please. I'm very happy to talk with you anytime, like for the Turn and Talk podcast or for professional development or even just professional collaborations here in New York. That would be so great. I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Jay. It was really great to meet you. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. Talk Bye. to you soon. And that's all for today's episode, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools. The support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself, people who are interested in the present and the future of education. So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash turnandtalkpodcast. We invite you to also follow us on Instagram at turnandtalkpodcast. If you haven't subscribed, yet, please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device. If you have questions, thoughts, feedback, or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back, please email us at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Jay McSuits, signing out. Peace.